Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. In uh, C groups this morning, we looked at 1 through 17. We're going to drill down a little bit, focus in on 1 through 4. Our celebrations of the week, we had last Sunday in our Connect group the highest attendance we've had since March 15th, 2020. I know I told you about our average attendance in October for worship. Well, this was a single day of Connect group. We had 80, and we have not seen that, well, in nearly, well, what is that now, 19 months or so. So we are excited to see what has been a continued creeping growth in our worship and uh, and C group attendance. If you're on any sort of social media, then you may have seen pictures of our sanctuary. It is 90% complete. Now, that 10% is not going to be done next week. That 10% is going to take weeks because it's touch-ups and finding imperfections. The, the contractors call that a punch list. And it's not that I get to punch people, although there have been some days. But nonetheless, uh, we, we've got those things to do and uh, brand new sound equipment. So hopefully the end of next week, the beginning of the week after, we're going to have some pretty in-depth training on that. That's going to be a, uh, uh, there's going to be a steep learning curve for all the technology in there. So when we finally do get in there, we're going to ask probably every Sunday for your patience. Uh, it's not going to be perfect the first time, and it's not going to be perfect the second time. Uh, it's going to take us a while to get all that figured out, not because there's anything wrong with the uh, uh, equipment, but uh, just the learning curve of the operators. So keep that in mind, but it's, it, the, these are all celebrations. Uh, I was telling other folks, I, I looked back at pictures from July and August. Well, actually, I went all the way back. I, I scrolled through Facebook to every picture that's been posted uh, about our progress. And, uh, uh, of course, huge difference between September 1 and today. But just this past July or August, the difference between what was and what is now, man, these last two months have been incredible. The problem is when you're in the middle of it, you see it so incrementally that you forget how far it's come until you start looking. Wait, it looked like that a month ago? I really had to look at some of the dates on the pictures and go, there's no way that it looked like that that recently, but it did. We've made huge, huge strides, and uh, there'll be even more uh, this week. Actually, the next couple of weeks, it's going to slow down with big changes because, the uh, just to let you all know, the tile for the fellowship hall and the foyer is really big tile, like two feet wide by four feet tall. It's huge stuff, and they're out of stock. They're having to make it, so it won't ship until November 30th and get here around the 2nd, 3rd of December and start going down, and it'll take a, probably, depending on how many people they have here, a good week to get it down, but uh, that will be very close to the last thing we have to do. So, uh, just, it, it's, it, 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 I could talk about it for hours. I won't, because... Y'all don't want to stay here that long. Um, but it's happening, and it's, it's, it's incredible to watch. So our passage this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it has its imperatives, and we're going to talk about the imperatives. But in keeping with our theme uh, for the entire book of Colossians, who Jesus is, 
This morning, we're looking at this passage from the perspective of where Christ is. That we're, we're talking about Jesus through all these, even the imperatives, even the commands, even the descriptions of us uh, and how we should be. We are looking at it from the perspective of what does it tell us about Jesus. And this morning, it tells us where Christ is. Now, to, to get you warmed up for it, if you were sitting at home with uh, a judge and that judge made a statement about a law or a court case or whatever, that statement from the judge sitting on his couch may sound authoritative and he may know all the rules and everything else, but it does not carry any authority at that moment. Now, a judge making the same statement from, from the bench is authoritative. So, location matters then, right? Where the judge is sitting at the time, where that person is sitting at the time, matters. And, and we could go through other uh, professions that, that would work similarly. Now, when we talk about Christ, His, his location doesn't change His authority. He is, he is the second person of the Trinity, whether he's on earth uh, feeding the multitudes or, as we will see today, seated at the right hand of the Father. It does not matter that it doesn't affect his authority, but when the Bible tells us specifically where Christ is at various moments, we need to take that into account. What does this mean for us? How does this affect us? How does this play out when we hear certain things, when we receive certain commands. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, tells us where Christ is, and that then leads us to hear the words of the passage in particular ways. Read with me the passage this morning, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You get a lot of locational... Locational? I'm going to go with it. Locational information about Christ in this passage. Gives us a number of positions He is in, places He is residing. Of course, Christ is everywhere at all points. So He is as omnipresent as the Father. So to say He is in one place at one particular time is us just trying to wrap human heads around a, a divine infinity. And so we have to put labels on it that, that make it easier for us to comprehend. So we are talking about not specific physical locations, but the, the import behind those locations, the meaning behind those locations. When Paul says Christ is here, here, or here, what does that mean? And that's what we're looking at today. We find five locations for Christ, five uh, positions for Christ in this passage. We see the first one in verse 1. 
Paul says, so if you have been raised with Christ, the position here, the location is raised. And as Etta pointed out in our Connect group, so if doesn't, isn't uh, a maybe, it's a since. Since you have been raised with Christ, as Paul writes to these uh, believers in the church in Colossae, he says, I know you. Y'all are believers. Y'all follow Jesus. So since, I mean, if you say you have, and I believe you have, and if you say that, then since you have been raised with Christ, we're going to look at two different aspects of each position. We're going to see what Christ's position means for him and what his position means for us. First, with raised, when Paul says he is raised, it means for Christ that the tomb is empty. He has been raised from the dead. It's, I, I love it when I get to start a sermon with the gospel. Christ isn't there. The, the tomb is empty. The, the, he's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He has been raised. Which tells us if, if Christ has been raised and the, the final enemy, the enemy that, that we just cannot defeat on our own, death, it, it is now defeated. Death no longer has power. Death, where is your victory? Uh, grave, or grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Paul will say in other places. Death is defeated if Christ has been raised. But more than that, more than just death is defeated, we could say the same thing, or we might could say the same thing if we look at any of the miracles that uh, uh, include raising someone from the dead. We can go all the way back to Elijah and find that. Find the, the raising of the dead. And we say, oh, death has been defeated. Now, the truth is, though, it hadn't because death was going to come for that widow's son one day. Death was going to come again for Lazarus one day. Jairus' daughter was going to, to die uh, again one day. The young girl that Jesus raised from the dead would die again someday. In those cases, death had been put off, but not defeated. Christ having been raised means that death is defeated. It can no longer claim victory. And when He defeated death, when death had, had its sting removed, when the grave could not declare victory any longer. Everything else that Jesus said about himself was suddenly proven true. He, he made the point, Jesus did, when they let the guy down in the, in the roof, the paralytic let him down through the roof into the crowded room. He said first to the guy, son, your sins are forgiven. And he knew the thoughts of the teachers around him, the Pharisees, and they're going, how can this man forgive sins? He's not God. Only God can forgive sins. And of course, he knew their thoughts and he said which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk of course the answer there is your sins are forgiven because it doesn't mean anything there's no visible visible result of that there there wasn't a little uh, claim ticket that came out of the guy's ear she forgiven oh good we, we have proof no there wasn't anything like that that happened so it's very easy jesus is saying to say your sins are forgiven but it's hard to say to a lifelong paralytic, take up your mat and walk. Boy, get up. And he did. 
So suddenly that added, that gave some credence to the whole your sins are forgiven. But, you know, it's a parlor trick. It, he wasn't really paralyzed. I mean, I know the whole, set, the whole town knows this guy, and he's been paralyzed his entire life, and everybody knows it, and they know what happened to cause it. But still, he, they tricked us somehow, they would say. And, and over and over and over, they would say that Jesus works by the power of the devil and all these other things that they would say about him. But when the tomb was empty, when Jesus was seen walking around for 40 days by hundreds and hundreds of people, when they knew he had been stabbed in the side, when they knew he had been wrapped up and they were getting ready to embalm him on Sunday morning, they knew he was dead and then the tomb was empty. Suddenly, all that talk about forgiveness, that was real. He does have the power to forgive. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And the empty tomb means for Jesus that what he said about himself is true and we can trust him. Well, what does it mean for us that Jesus is raised? Well, we find our first imperative right after that. It says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Seek is that imperative. If he has been raised, then Paul is saying that it, it, uh, it follows that we as believers who have been raised with him, buried with him in death, we have a picture of it in baptism, buried with him in death, raised to walk in the newness of life. Since we have been raised with him, we seek what is from him. And this ain't talking about blessings. This isn't talking about the things he can give us. Oh, now that he's the risen son of God, he can give us stuff. That's how a lot of people treat the name. That's why some would sing about what a beautiful, wonderful, powerful name it is. We get treats from heaven because of Jesus. In Jesus' name, I declare this will happen. So? Jesus didn't declare in his name that it would happen, so we ain't counting on it. It's not a, he's not a vending machine. He's not a, a, a heavenly gift giver. Instead, he is talking about seek the things above. Seek what we are supposed to be doing. Who we are as believers in a lost and fallen world that will come against us and will persecute us and will try to lead us away. Seek what he has for us in our own fleshliness, in our own tendencies toward sin our own battle between who we want to be as believers and who we are as humanity seek what is from him this does not mean we get our choices our options or our preferences paul as as i have preached paul made the mistakes where he chose to do what he wanted to do and and reaped the percussion repercussions of that but when he turned to do what christ had him do he saw blessing he saw uh bounty he saw success not as the world would give success not as we would label it but as christ would label it well done good and faithful servant so if he is raised, if he's no longer dead, if he's dead, we don't have to do anything Jesus said. The Gospels don't mean anything. Jesus' teachings are pointless. I mean, they might be some good psychology, they might help you get along with people, but if he is still in the grave, who gives a rip what he said? But he's not. So we seek what is from him. 
if He is no longer in the grave, if He is a new creation, uh, and and I don't want to take that too far. I can quickly get into heresy, and I don't want to do that. If He had His glorified body, if He had what He was going to be, and we believe that when we get to heaven, we'll see the scars. He, he had the body. That's what went up. And that is what is there waiting on us now. If, if He is all those things, then we too will rise in a new and glorious body. But not just physically are we a new, will we be a new body. We are something new now. Jesus made clear that if we follow Him, we will be different. We will be something we weren't before we followed Him. We are now a new creation, Paul tells us in Romans. And Ephesians were created for good works. We are new. We are something different than we were. Physically, you did not change the moment you trusted Christ. You didn't get some Jesus tattoo. You, you, didn't, you didn't sprout wings. There wasn't a halo that floats above you all this time. It was nothing that happened physically, but spiritually you were brand new. A new creature. Not your own. You've been bought with a price. Because He's raised from the dead. He is no longer in the tomb. And if He is no longer in the tomb, not only did He defeat death, if He has forgiven us for our sin, if He has shown us, and He did in His life, how to defeat sin, then we, in His resurrection, in His raised-to-life state, we see that if we can defeat death, we can overcome sin. Here's the... Irony's not the word. Here's the confusion of the matter. Death is defeated, and we all gonna die. I've told you that before. Every one of you, you gonna die. Happy message this morning. Y'all gonna die. We know it. We know it's going to happen. None of us, I don't think, really look forward to it, but a nap would be great. You know, it, good, good, good night's sleep. But the way I understand it, though, is immediately we wake up so in the presence of the Lord, so I don't know that the nap's going to be that long. Anyway, I digress. Uh, if, if you are new and, 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 and you are, we see that, that death is defeated, but we're still going to die, then it's easier to comprehend the fact that sin is defeated, and yet we sin. See, our overcoming of sin is not that we will never sin again. It's that we can overcome it when it shows up. We have the strength. We have the power. We, we have the ability. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the promise. We actually even have the mandate to be perfect, Jesus said, as my heavenly Father is perfect. Wretched man that I am, though, Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, and I, 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 I do. Who will save me from this, I'm going to paraphrase, this stupidity that I'm caught up in in my own sinfulness? Well, Christ will save us. We can overcome sin. And as a matter of fact, we have overcome sin. The whole right now, not yet. Right now, we are forgiven, we are clean, we are pure. And one day, we will be fully purified. 
Right now we carry the blood and it is on us and we, we are seen by Christ, by our Heavenly Father, as His, as forgiven, as washed white as snow, as holy saints, the Bible calls us. And yet every one of us knows we ain't no saint. Sin has been defeated and sin can regularly be defeated through the process of sanctification. Because death is defeated and death is the result of sin, sin has also been defeated. The second location for Christ is seated. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above. Things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What does seated mean for Him? Well, we've talked about this before. We talked about it way back uh, when we looked at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. We've talked about it at other times. One, when he is seated, it means his work is complete. Nobody sits down until the job's done. Uh, until your job involve, unless your job involves sitting, and then you lay down when the job's done. When, when Christ got up on the Saturday morning at the, uh, the synagogue in, uh, I believe, Nazareth, and said and read Isaiah about the coming Messiah and told them, in your eyes, in your, in your, right now, in front of you, this passage has been uh, fulfilled. And then he, he sat down. Now, traditionally, Baptist church, well, all churches, had where the pastors sat and the minister of music, and you had the big chairs up there, and everybody knew that's where, that's where the staff sat when, you know, at the various times. Of it. But they were... There were chairs you could use. Here, it was a chair that was supposed to be left open as symbolically of the coming Messiah. And Jesus said, guess what, y'all? Messiah's here. And sat in Messiah's chair. Now, he was showing them that by his coming and what was coming, that the work was going to be completed. Then we see, as he is ascended into heaven, and Paul tells us, and Psalm 110.1 foreshadowed and prophesied that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the Father because His work is completed. The work of defeating death, defeating sin, making us new. Well, we've talked about in the past also that Him see, being seated at the right hand of the Father shows them as co-regents, not subordinate Christ was not subordinate to God, the Father, but seated next to Him, equal to the Father. And not just equal to the Father, but one with the Father. The Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father, but Jesus is God, and the Father is God. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Holy Spirit is God. It's the best analogy, the best image I can give you that doesn't creep into heresy and kind of lets you understand what we mean by the Trinity. They are not each other, but they are God. And He is one with the Father. He said over and over, I and the Father are one. If you have seen Me, you have seen the Father, because they are both God. 
and being seated equally with the Father next to him shows us that. And because he is seated next to the Father, because the work is completed, then we see that all authority is his. Sit by me, sit beside me while I make your enemies your footstool, while everything is underneath you. Verse 18 of chapter 1, first place in everything, the head of the church, everything under him is reconciled to himself, etc., etc. All authority is, is Christ's because he is God. And all authority is God, is God's. So what does that mean for us? If, if Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, we who are Jesus' followers, we who are Jesus' believers, then we know that we're secure in our salvation. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is co-regent. He is equal to the Father. He is, along with the Father, God. Therefore, if the work is completed, if everything is done, if there is no more work to be done, that means there's no more work to be done in our salvation. If we have trusted Christ, then we are saved eternally. We are secure. We would call that as Baptists, security of the believer. Why is it secure? Because there's no more work to be done. If there was something else to do, then we might say, oh no, we could lose our salvation. But there's nothing else to do. We don't do anything to be saved to begin with. So if the work is done, we are secure. It also means for us then, if, if Christ is equal with the Father, one with the Father, and all authority is Christ's, then obedience to Christ as little Christ's, that's what Christians literally means. It was a pejorative term. Oh, look at these little Jesuses running around. I wish. I wish people could call me a little Jesus more often. A, a little Christ. But if we are His, if we are taking His name, then obedience to Christ is non-negotiable. To, to take God's name in vain is not to use God's name as a cuss word. That probably is part of it, but that is not the intent of it. To take God's name in vain, or in this case, to take Christ's name in vain, to take the name of Christian in vain, is to have the name but not look like it. To, to have Jesus in charge but not in control. And that's what we want to do. But if He is seated at the right hand, and he is, and if he, his work is completed, and it is, and if he is one with the Father, and he is, and if all authority has been given to him, and it has, then we don't have the option but to be obedient. And yet, God did, God did not create robots, and we have the option. And because we have the option, because we can tell Christ, no, then we're responsible for our actions. Because we can say, I don't want to do that today, I don't want to be that today, I don't want people to see little Jesus, I, 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 want people, I, just, I, I don't want to work at it today, then we're responsible for that. We are responsible to seek the things above that imperative in the middle of the verse. And then that means when 
We are disciplined because the Lord disciplines whom He chastens. No, the, the Lord disciplines whom He loves, rather. When we receive that discipline, that's on us because we are responsible. Three, the third location is above. He says it in, in verse 1, seek the things above. And then in verse 2, the second imperative, he says, set your minds on things above. Now, the first one we seek, we look, we, we read Scripture, we go to the Lord in prayer, we, Jesus, we pray, Jesus, lead me. And then when we know, when we have determined, when it has been told to us and clearly told to us, we set our minds on these things, the second imperative. These things above, not on earthly things. Now what does it mean for Jesus for Him to be above? Well, first of all, it means He has a different way and plan. Years ago, uh, I did a, a, a series, uh, preached a series from uh, Max Licato's book called The Story. And the way the story was written, it was a... I would call it a narrative, not retelling of the Bible, but, but kind of. What he would do was he would condense large portions of the Bible into narrative and then take other portions of the Bible um, uh, uh, literally, uh, strictly, explicitly, there's another word I'm looking for anyway, and, and, and insert the Scripture. So he didn't have all the Scripture. He would say, and this was going on, this was going on, this was that. and then we get to this passage, and he would do that. His whole purpose, though, was the story. He, he called it the, the, the story above and the story below. And we see the story below. We see everything that goes on. We're aware of, of wars and, and natural disasters and, and all of our sinfulness and all the things that, that go into daily life and who we are. But what we aren't as aware of, especially if we're not spending time in God's Word, is the upper story. That's what they were, the upper story and the lower story. And it's the upper story that matters. It's, it's God's story that matters. It's, it's God's plan that matters. We have ideas, but Jesus has a different way and plan because he is above us he, it, it, he, he's above our pay grade we would say I, we don't we're on a need to know basis god knows he has this different way and plan because he is above us but if he is above everything and all of our nuances all of our missteps all of our uh things that go wrong then he doesn't react to surprises. And I put quotes around the word surprises because there are no surprises to God. He's above all of it. Christ is above all of it. When we think, oh man, we didn't see that coming. Jesus did. And, and for whatever reason, in his sovereign will, chose to allow it to happen. It wasn't a surprise. Because Christ is above those things. And if He is above the surprises, if He is above our way and plan, 
then when we have ideas of how things should go, and we think, all right, this next step, this next month, this next year will be this way, Jesus is not beholden to those ideas. Jesus is not beholden to earthly ways. He doesn't look around and say, now, what's the American church doing right now? Well, let me see how I can fit into their plan. That is not what he's doing. He's above that. So if Christ is above that, what does it mean for us? Well, it means that common sense won't work. And, and we, we, we try this. We say, well, common sense says we should, as a church or as a believer or whatever, we should do this. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in your common sense. You're not that common and you're not that sensical. Or maybe you're very common but not sensical enough. You, you don't worry about your common sense because I will tell you when Moses, or rather when Abraham was told to sacrifice his, uh, his son, Isaac, that did not fit with common sense. When God told him, I will give you a son at 90 years old, and didn't fulfill it, and didn't fulfill it, and didn't fulfill it for the next, uh, rather, no, at 75 years old, I should say, and didn't fulfill it for the next 25 years, Abraham said, common sense says, this is Sarah's fault. Let me get a little woman named Hagar, and we'll make one of our own. Common sense said that would fix it, and it didn't fix it. Common sense told Paul, I need to go to Jerusalem, and that wasn't where he was supposed to be. Common sense tells us a lot of things that almost never fit with God's plan because he does not move based on our common sense. Common sense doesn't work. Business practices don't work. If common sense doesn't work and things end up differently than we planned, then the second thing it means for us is that we're unaffected by those surprises. Are we surprised? Yes. <gasps> but who cares? I mean, that really has to be the way we look at surprises. If we know where we are supposed to be, if we are clear on what Christ is telling us to do, that surprise that seems to throw a monkey wrench into it or make us go a direction we weren't expecting or whatever, that doesn't matter. That surprise does not affect us. Could it be that the Lord is speaking through that surprise? Oh, it's possible. But not if He is contradicting what He has already told us to do, especially that which is clear in Scripture. It means we're unaffected by surprises if, if Christ is above everything. It means we aren't concerned with any other worldview. Maybe it's not common sense. Maybe it's a standard practice of some group we belong to or a belief or a policy of some group we belong to. But if it goes against what Christ has clearly said in His Word, then we don't concern ourselves with any other worldview. We are Christians before we are anything else. Before we are any political party, any nationality, any family name, any label we may put on ourselves, we are Christians and everything else conforms to that. We do not conform our Christianity to the other things. Christ is not beholden to earthly ways. We then aren't beholden to any earthly world view. And then the imperative makes it clear. Once we have sought the things above and we know those things that we're supposed to do, 
we set our minds on those things, we now determine that we will be obedient because obedience is a non-negotiable, but we can be disobedient. We know to do what to do, and we do it. Fourth, we are hidden. Or rather, Christ is hidden. We talk about all this, where he is, ran hand of the Father, and he's doing it, he's in our hearts, he's doing it, and he's hidden suddenly. Verse 3, for you died, and your life is hidden, and notice the prepositions, it's not hidden in Christ, it's hidden with Christ in God. That means that Christ and our lives are hidden in God. What does it mean for Christ to be hidden? It means that he is the mystery of God. We have talked about the mystery already. Verse 26 of chapter 1, uh, it says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The mystery which is Christ in you. That means if he is hidden, he is a mystery. Well, the biggest mystery is how does salvation work? Oh, well, we trust in Christ saves us. Yeah, okay. Well, how did that work? Well, he died on the cross for our sins. Okay, well, how did that work? Well, because he's both divine and human, he, 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 sir, he, he fulfilled the debt requirement on God's side, but he represented, it, uh, represented us on the human side. When he, but yeah, but how did that work? Well, that was how God set it up way back. Okay, but how did that... You see, we, we never get to the kernel of the mystery. Christ and his salvation is a mystery, and that's what it means. But, he, but God has revealed him in these days, in the days of the Bible and the days to us. But the truth is, Christ is unseen with worldly eyes. He, he told the very people he was teaching to, most of y'all ain't going to get this. You don't have eyes to see. You don't have ears to hear. It's, it, it, you, you don't understand, this is for those who know me. Worldly eyes don't see. Worldly minds don't understand. Worldly ears don't hear. Christ is hidden to the world. He is a mystery to the world. How in the world can you follow a, mur a murdered prophet? Oh, not even a murdered prophet. He was tried and executed. How can you follow a criminal prophet from 2,000 years ago? Because who Jesus is is hidden to you. Until the Holy Spirit illuminates, opens their heart. And that begins when they see Jesus in us. Christ is hidden until the little Jesus shows up. That's not to say the Holy Spirit doesn't work on their hearts. That does not mean to say that they can't see Christ from Scripture as the Holy Spirit illuminates them. But notice that they've got to come to Scripture to find Christ. They have to go to believers to find Christ. And while these words from 2,000 to 4,000 years ago may be interesting to them, what gives them the most validity, the reason the church is the mission the reason why we are called to make disciples is because just handing them a Bible and walking away may save a few, may reach a few, but the ones that will be reached the most 
will be the ones who see Jesus in the Jesus followers. Christ is hidden in us. And then we must expose Him to the world. We show them. That's why it is so important that Jesus, that, that we be different from the world in all situations, at all times. Social media and everywhere else. And I'm about to step on some toes. Quit talking about Brandon on your social media. And some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. That is not showing Christ to the world. Everybody knows what you mean. Stop. Because they're not seeing Jesus in you if that is the way you're presenting yourself. So that means for us, though, well, it means we are protected. If Christ is hidden, what do you do? Some of y'all that have money under your mattress, I hope you don't have it there anymore. But you know you can buy those things that look like uh, cans of soup or whatever, and you can stash the money in there. My, my grandmother's, uh, grandmother, uh, nothing weird. Um, my grandmother and granddaddy, mamma and granddaddy, there. If I just use their names, it'd be easier. Years ago, she had Reader's Digest condensed comp compilations. Y'all, any y'all remember those? You could buy, you could, it was a, a, a um, like book of the month sort of thing, and all the Reader's Digest magazines came in book form. So you had all these stories, and I, we would go to her house, and, and we didn't watch a lot of TV at her house. She was an English, a high school English teacher for however many years, so reading was a big deal at her house, so we knew if we went to her house, we had a million books to choose from. That's what we'd do. We'd go through, look for the books, and, and we would go through these Reader's Digest uh, books looking for the condensed story to read. I could finish one in one night. It wasn't a big deal. I saw one about a I was, I was into animals and that sort of thing when I was reading it this time, and I saw one about a tiger or something. So I go, oh, I haven't read that one before, and I pull it out, and I go to open it up, and there's, a, it's not a book. It's a, it's a hidey hole for cash. It was $200 in there. I left it. I did not take it. I know what some of y'all are thinking. Shame on you. I just, I just closed it back, closed up and put it back, and I think I said something to my daddy about it, but we hide that money, you hide it in your mattress, you use that little soup can, she used that Reader's Digest book to hide what was valuable, to protect it. If we are hidden with Christ, we are protected. It doesn't mean that we won't experience problems, it doesn't mean that we won't experience persecution, but we are protected. The fiery darts of the devil have no power over us when we have put on the full armor of God. When we are hidden behind that armor, when we are hidden in God, we are protected, but we are also preserved. We are protected in the, from the attack, but we are preserved, saved for later. We are saved for eternity. We are tickled in the Holy Spirit so that we won't deteriorate. I mean, that's, that's, that's what happens when you make preserves, right? That you, you, you make preserves, you use sugar, it, you, you're curing it. You're preserving those things, and they last for a long time. We're pickled by the Holy Spirit. There's, there's, your, there's your Facebook quote. Michael said we're pickled by the Holy Spirit. That's fine. We are preserved. We're saved for later. And then we're not our own to use. If we are hidden... If, if you go and you put money into a, a CD, certificate of deposit, at the bank, can you just go the next day and get that money back out? 
You can, but you pay a penalty. Why? Because for the six months or whatever you sign up for with that CD, that money is not you, yours to use. You gain interest off of it, at a, and at a point in time, you get it back and better, but it's not yours in that time. If our lives are hidden with Christ, we have put them into the certificate of deposit of God and said they are yours to use until that time you deem to give them back to us. And that's when we get to go to be with Him. That's when we get our lives back. Until then, they are not ours to use. Until then, we, hidden in Him, show Him to everybody that sees us. We are little Christs. We are exposing Christ to the world. And lastly, where Christ is, He's coming. When, when you were supposed to meet somebody at a particular time, at a particular place, and you get there and they're not there yet, and you text them or you call them or whatever, and, they say, and you say, where are you? What do they say? I'm coming. They don't ever tell you where they are. Well, I'm on I-10 between the the Roost Street and the Begless uh, Highway exit. No, I'm coming. I'm coming. Where is Jesus? He's coming. Is he, he's coming, but is he halfway? He's coming. Is he almost here? He's coming. This means that Christ is not passive. He, he, we get the image of him seated, but that's not what he's doing. He is not passively seated waiting to show up. He is in progress. He is coming. He is on his way. Paul said it could be tomorrow. Live like it is tomorrow. Live like it is today. You might not have tomorrow. Christ is coming. What it means is if he is coming, his return is perfectly timed. He's not late, and he won't be early. He will be right on time. You don't have to call him and say, where, you are, where are you? He's coming. When will you get here? When I'm supposed to. Whose ways? Whose plans? Who's above us? No, him. And when, what this means is he is coming, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He was hidden, but he's coming. He's hidden in God now. He is not seen by the world now, but He is coming, and He will be seen by everyone. We will see, finally, our Savior, who we have only known through our hearts and through Scripture and through the Holy Spirit. We will see Him face to face, finally, and we will rejoice, but there will be those who will see Him, many, many who will see Him, and will see Him in terror, not in joy, because they will see Him for who He, who he is. We will see our Savior, and they will see their judge. When He comes in glory, that glory will save us, and it will condemn the lost. So if He's coming, what does that mean for us? It means we have hope and a purpose in life. This isn't for nothing. Hurricanes and pandemics aren't for nothing. Sicknesses and disease aren't for nothing. Pain and trauma aren't for nothing. Joy and, and beauty aren't for nothing. They give us hope and they give us a purpose. Both our trials and our obedience will be vindicated. Those who persecute, those who say, 
You saved others to Jesus. You saved others. Save yourself. Three days later, he did. He saved others and himself. He was vindicated. We will be vindicated. Those who persecute us and say, where is your Jesus? Where is your faith? Where is your hope? We say it's hidden in God with Christ. And one day it will come on a white horse with faithful and true and a sword and He will bring us to glory. We will be vindicated in what we have gone through. And we will get to weep in joy that every moment we have gone through has been His and in His hand. And we are guaranteed an eternal home. He's coming to get us. To take us home. When he, who, uh, when he who is your life appears, we will appear with Him in glory. We're guaranteed that eternal home. But not all of us. Only those of us who have experienced salvation through Jesus Christ will be with Him in glory. We'll see that coming as a joyous thing and not a judgment thing. Only in salvation can we rejoice that Jesus is coming. When, when we're in sin, when, when the classroom is cutting up because the teacher stepped out, and the person stationed at the door that's supposed to warn everybody says, The teacher's coming. It was the goody-goodies that just sat there still doing their work because they didn't care. It was the rest of us who suddenly had to run back to our desks and put up whatever it is we were doing and look busy. The teacher's coming. We are the ones that when we hear he's coming, we don't, we don't have to Look busy, we are busy making disciples. We don't have to sh jump to our seat. We've been doing what we we're supposed to, and we're excited. Jesus is coming because he's going to, like that teacher, going to make everything right in the room. I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to, and y'all just acting fools. When the teacher comes in, it's all going to be fixed. When Jesus comes back, it'll all be fixed. But we have a responsibility to make sure those in the room with us are doing the work of our teacher. If you don't have the joy of His return, if the return of Jesus does not shout glory in your life, but oh no, you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you can experience the joy so that you can say, Christ is my life. And when He appears, it will be glory. Uh, I'm moving to a different uh, invitation verse this morning. This is a verse from the Roman road that I've been using, but I want to show you how you can use one verse to share the Gospel. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's all there. The wages. You, you, there's a payment. We owe something. 
and we will pay because that next word is. It, it, it's not debatable. It's not a maybe. It's not possibly. It is the wages of sin, and we're all sinners. Every one of us, we know it. The wages of sin is guaranteed death. We owe something. That, that's where we are. That's where every person is. Sinners doomed to die. But the gift, not the work, not the effort, not the what you can do, but the gift of God, the gift that you must receive, that you must accept, because I can leave that present under the Christmas tree for years, and you can say you gave me the gift, but if I don't open it and receive it, it's never mine. I never make use of it. If you get me that Corvette, and I don't drive it, well, I'm a moron, but if I just say, thank you, and I leave it in the parking lot, and it sits there and rusts, have I received that gift? Oh, no, child, I'm driving that sucker. It's going home. I received the gift. But this gift is not a Corvette, as nice as that would be. This is the gift of God, and it is eternal life. The wages are death, but we can have eternal life. The body will die, the soul never will, and it will be with Him. How? In Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. When He died on the cross, He took the sin. He took the debt. He took the punishment. He took the payment. He did it all in our place. Our Lord. The Master that we make Him when we follow Him. He is our Lord. You can have Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. Repent of your sins. Trust Him. And experience glory today. Pray with me. Father, thank You that Your Word is clear to us. We, we see where Christ is. He's in our hearts first and foremost as believers. But because of Your Word, because of how You used uh, imagery... And the language of the authors, we get to see so much more about Christ than just He's in our hearts or He's in a place. God, we get to, we get to relate to Him. We get to see pictures of Him ministering His work as our Savior on a daily basis. We get to see long before it happens or maybe just the day before it happens. Who knows? Only you. We get to see Jesus coming in glory. But Lord, as we see that vision, may it ever encourage us to make disciples of those who have never trusted Jesus as Savior. Lord, as those who are listening online, on TV, or right here in this room that have never trusted Jesus as their Savior, may this moment encourage them to make that decision to follow, to trust, to believe, to repent, and to be yours. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So how should you respond today? Maybe you need to accept Christ. Make him yours. Make, experience that salvation and begin that glorious journey with him today. Maybe you need to be baptized. we still got our tank. We can do it. We will baptize you. Maybe you need to join our church. Be a part of what we're doing here. Be a part of what God is doing through us. God's got great plans. He's, I do not believe He's going to do all this for us to sit 
and die. But God's working through us. Maybe believer, you need to get some things right with Him. Maybe some of these locations of Jesus caught you by surprise this morning. Reminded you of some ways that you're not where you need to be. That's where Christ is. Where are you this morning? Are you outside the fold? Are you in the fold but a rebellious sheep? Are you the one from the 99? Are you the coin that's lost, the prodigal that's run off? Come back this morning. We're going to sing. We're going to let God work on our hearts. If you would like to pray with someone, Tom is at the back at the, Connect, uh, the Welcome Center. Uh, Lee and Kirk, two of our deacons, are in the back wall. They would love to pray with you. Whatever your decision is this morning, let God work on your hearts as we stand, as we sing, and as we do business with Him this morning.